let's start with something from the scriptures, uh, if, if we may. Uh, could someone perhaps find Luke 24 um, and uh, read Luke 24 from the 25th verse to the 27th, or if you're feeling particularly enthusiastic about it as you read, go on to the, to the 32nd verse. So we'll give, you, give folks who have Bibles a chance to, to find that while I try to do the same. Anybody find it? Excellent. So would you read Luke 24, verse 25 through 32. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. More. Yeah, go ahead. Go all the way to 32. To the village to which they were going, he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and now he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, so, do we recognize what what this is? What you know? What this is the the experience um, of the, the road to Emmaus, where this is recognition of Jesus uh, uh, in his resurrection body. Um, and I start here because um, well, what we hear is Jesus. Um, saying, uh, O foolish ones, and and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So here in this moment, where Jesus is meeting um, uh, these, these men on the road to Emmaus, and they're trying to make sense of what's happened in the resurrection, Jesus himself points to the prophets. Um, he points to uh, scripture, um, to uh, to guide uh, to guide them in understanding what's gone on, and and it is true that they do recognize him. We end they they recognize him. And he's known to them in the breaking of the bread, and yet on the road, what he what is he doing? He's he begins with Moses and all the prophets, and he interprets them, and he's interpreting to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So this is, I think, an important thing to keep in mind as we look at the history of the, the formation of the New Testament canon. That here Jesus is, and he's interpreting Moses and all the prophets. And there's an ambiguity there, too, because it's, it's, it's of course, we think of Moses as a lawgiver, um, of course, prophet as well. So, so there's a sense in which 
Moses is being seen not just as, as, as a lawgiver, but also as one with a prophetic calling. I mean, there's, a, there's that in there, that, that prophecies are being explained. And he's interpreting the things that concern himself in the scriptures. Um, and so that's also another point of some ambiguity. But, uh, the, you know, in that, you know, I, I, I would venture to say that the, you know, that the whole of the scriptures point us uh, to, to Jesus. Um, so what, what we have here is a kind of the first biblical theology. Uh, from the mouth of our Lord himself. Um, and we don't get that whole uh, theology articulated for us in, in, in Luke's narrative here. Instead, we have a sense of uh, the importance of the recognition and the true and living experience that these, that these men have in breaking bread with Jesus and recognizing who he is. Um, but right there at the start, we see something of a tradition of interpreting the prophets. And pay it also... Keep in, your, in mind that, that idea of Moses um, being, being a part of that. So uh, basic details about um, just the form of the New Testament canonization. We talked um, last week about uh, the emergence of a canon of the Hebrew scriptures um, and how uh, conflict with Christians about their works really um, precipitated a need to define what the Hebrew Bible was um, to exclude Christian testimony um, for, for Jews. And that's why, it, and, and we see that as an as important uh, motivator in really closing the canon in a formal way. But we also see that, the, we also saw that there was a uh, a fair deal of a, a sense of, of, of unity um, with the law and the prophets at the time of Christ. Um, so we had three categories, and I love the diocese. They don't use these things at all, so, so it's still up there. Um, you can see, I, uh, <laughs> so, um, so we have law, prophets, and writings, and that, the, and that the open category at the time of Jesus uh, was the writings. Uh, that was the category where it was a little unclear, and, and there are many different theories, and it's fun if you enjoy this sort of thing to, 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 to consider them. I mean, some, some say, well, actually, uh, writings were all regarded as prophetic writings, and then there was a division of the, the knock that was divided. It was just the na, uh, but that, anyhow, it doesn't much matter. The, point, the, the exciting thing is that we know that the law and the prophets have a unitative and authoritative place in uh, the Judaism of Jesus's day, and that there are writings in circulation as well um, that that are are kind of gathered together um, and have, are certainly closed, um, or there's a closing of the canon um, as as a sort of reaction to the fact that there are new scriptures circulating um, about the experience that the uh, um, apostles and disciples and people have had of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. So. Uh, there, part of part of the exciting thing is we. One of the if you if you came way back uh, before we talked about I mean when I did a, I did a class on the creeds, uh, in their context, not the content of the creeds, but how they came about. And one of the things we we, we sort of tend to do is we think about councils as being really important for establishing uh, content. Um, you know, we live in a culture where we wait for a kind of, you know, the 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 declaration from some authoritative body, whether it's the Supreme Court, the legislature, uh, the executive. I regret bringing this topic up. But anyhow, um, the, there's a kind of uh, 
we, we wait for that kind of authoritative word. Um, and that is, is, is not quite what happens. We saw that in the, in the creeds, in the way that the creeds actually come about as a restatement of something that's going on in liturgy um, that, that uh, in baptism. So, so today we had a baptism um, and we recited the creed. And, uh, and at, at the way the creeds came about was uh, people in conflict saying, well, I was baptized into and reciting kind of what they were baptized into. And then when there was conflict, they, they congealed. And that's how councils came in to speak about it. And that's a parallel development. And I f- forgive me if you weren't there for that class or, or that was not helpful to you. We'll, we'll get to it uh, on its own through this. Um, but uh, we, 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 we see that a certain um, uh, practice, a, 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 a ritual practice, uh, is um, sort of receives some kind of official pronouncement. But when we look at the canon of scripture, um, we see that if, if we're able to get away with imagining that, you know, I, I, once, had, <laughs> I once had a priest up, up, up in Massachusetts tell me, and we were sitting in the car next to each other, so I don't think you can see my face, but <laughs> he said that the Nicene Creed was just the, the minutes to a, to a, to a meeting. It's just a, the minutes to a meeting. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like the meeting between God and man. But anyhow, um, uh, um, but uh, the, 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 the idea that we, 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 we indulge ourselves to imagining that that the things that are authoritative in the Christian tradition come from authoritative bodies. And this is really important for, for many folks in the church, and it's a live question today, because if, if you know, so I have a friend who, who likes to tell me that the Bible is the book of the Catholic Church. Um, and it's like, well, I hope so. Um, but the, 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 way he say, the reason he's saying that is, is he has this idea that well, you know, the church decided what was in and what was out in Scripture. The, the church, so really, the church has produced the Bible. It's theirs, and therefore the authorities of the church and the power structure stand over the Scripture in a way. Now, I don't think that's true. <laughs> um, and what we see is that when we look at the history of how the New Testament um, receives its canonicity, how it, how it is, and I should, I should explain, when we talk about a canon, we're talking about a group of texts that are authoritative, that have a, a unity. Um, and, and we can talk about something, a scripture having authority. So we talked about how there was a law, the law and the prophets were authoritative at the time of Christ. Um, and the writings were authoritative as well, but the canon was not closed at that time. So there wasn't a sense of, like, this is what's unitive here. Um, but what we look at when we look at the history of the New Testament is if you're, looking, if you're hoping for some council, if you're hoping for some moment where the church gathers together and authoritatively decides what the Bible is going to be, and this is also popular, it's not just about, you know, it's popular in a secular sort of conspiracy theory Dan Brown mindset. I talk about Dan Brown, I've never read his stuff, but I think I know what's in there. Um, so like, if I'm wrong, you let me know. But this idea um, that uh, we have, um, the, the church has somehow like come up with all this stuff. Like they, they went back and they created these scriptures to back up whatever weird conspiracy we were all on about. But I, that's just, a, it's silly. But the important thing to remember is that on, on both sides, those who really want to kind of assert the authority of uh, 
individuals in the church as, a, as like authoritative speakers for God, and then those who want to completely undermine that authority, they end up coming full circle. And they end up saying that the, the Bible comes out of, of a kind of ecclesiastical decision that comes from a hierarchy. Um, and so, they, so, so there's a sense in which they come full circle. And we actually don't want to be anywhere near that. We want to be on the other side of the circle. <laughs> um, uh, and and what, what, what's exciting is that we find historically um, what's going on is uh, uh, a kind of um, uh, organic process where just as um, the law and the prophets have this, this distinct canon and then writings as well, they're, 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 there's this authoritative scripture at the time of Christ that in the early church, very early on, documents are circulating which are authoritative for the community um, as, uh, as records of what's happened. Uh, and similarly, we, just pa- drawing a parallel again to, the, to the, discuss, sort of the discussion of how the creeds arose out of conflict over various Christological heresies about the nature of Christ, and then people turning and saying, well, listen, this is the faith I was baptized into. I don't know what they did at your baptism, but here's what we said at mine. <laughs> and then out of that coming to an agreement about the core of what the Christian faith means, that represents a kind of oral liturgical tradition. And similarly, um, there's plenty of evidence uh, and, uh, that what's going on in the early Christian community, that there is a kind of oral tradition about Jesus, which makes sense. People are telling one another about what, you know, what happened with Jesus Christ. Um, and, 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 and one thing that, 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 that I didn't mention last week but I think is in, important is, uh, and, and you know, it's all, it all, this is why this is a three-part series. Unfortunately, you know, like it all fits together. Um, is that in addition to the written Torah, there's a tradition of the oral Torah. That there's a tradition of um, rabbis commenting on the Torah, on, on the law as, as written. And, and, the, and the, the story was that Moses himself had a kind of, a tradition about how to interpret the law, which makes some sense if you think about it. If you know you have a written document, and then the person who gives it to you might say, "Well, you know, I always understood this this way," and that's going to have a certain authority because they're the ones who shared it with you, right? For example, uh, here's a here's a better way of thinking about this. When when we when we tune in to NPR for a for an interview with a novelist or an author, right? There's a sense in which what the author says about his or her book is authoritative. Right? If, you know, she wrote the thing. If she says that's what was up, it's like, okay, we should pay attention to that. But it's not in the book itself, right? She's just explaining what was going on. And so, and, and that really is the oral, just our, our literary canon, right? The, it, you know, which is a different, you know, this, the, the kind of sense of the canon of Western li- like literature, which is an open canon, you know, it's, uh, we, we can still add books to it, but, but also has an oral tradition to it. And, and what happens if, if, if I want to study Herman Melville's Moby Dick, which, which is, I, I talk about Moby Dick virtually every class. Something's wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, if I want to know about Moby Dick, and what do I do? I, I, if I, I research something about what Melville wrote, something about people who've reached, that is the, the oral law of Moby Dick, right? And so there's this whole tradition. So similarly, the Torah had developed an oral um, there had been an oral tradition about how to interpret the Torah, and that continues to, to this day in the Mishnah and, and in different um, types of um, uh, 
Jewish um, commentary on the scriptures. I had this all mapped out, and I've already gone off script. Um, so, uh, so, 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 so here, 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 good. So one of the one of the fun things is that um, the 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 Torah. So the Torah is in what? What, what when we, we we think of the Torah, think of think of you go to a temple if you've ever gone to a bar mitzvah or something. What is the Torah on? What's it look like? It's scrolls, right? And um, and and so part of how to differentiate between what is the Torah and what is the oral Torah now that it's written down because it's not oral anymore because you started writing it down, just like what are the books that are in literary criticism rather than the literature itself, um, is uh, they, they they used a different different they didn't write them on big scrolls in the same way. Um, they would use codices, They'd, and uh, and 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 the the the, the word literally means commentary. So, so in, 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 in Latin, um, the word for this is a commentarii. Like these, the, well, th- that's the plural, commentarii. Uh, commentaries. Um, uh, is, is we get commentaries from this. But that's actually the Latin word um, at the time for codexes. The word codex comes out later. People aren't actually using it, but they're using codexes. Does that make sense? I mean, like, the codexes are in use, but they don't, aren't calling them codexes. They're calling them commentarii. And I think that that's just helpful because linguistically it shows us that, um, that what, how, you know, just something of, of what role that played, that you had the scrolls, like the, the Torah on its big, fancy, awesome scroll. And then you have the commentarii, which contain... The commentaries, just like we have biblical commentaries today. And, and you judge that a little bit. They're authoritative, right? We want to say, oh, this was written by the professor at blank or whatever we respect, and they have a certain degree of authority. But we might also say, like, I don't accept that one. You know, so, there's, so even if it's authoritative, there's some give and take, right? Um, so there's this whole tradition. Now, what I think is fascinating, and I, I read the most exciting dissertation I've ever read in my life preparing for this class um, from Lund University by a guy named Thomas Bokdal. It was from 2005, and it was really exciting because in it, it there's this whole tradition that we're going to talk about next week about, um, uh, about the... Um, about, about sort of what it means to think canonically. What does it mean to read the scriptures as a whole? And there's a lot of theological reflection that's gone, and particularly after the 19th century, we talked about in the late 19th century, uh, scholars are considering the questions of how the canon came to be, and that brings a kind, uh, that sort of precipitates a, a sort of theological reflection on, on what all that uh, means for us as Christians. So next week we're going to talk about the theological reflection, but this week what I want to focus on are some of the facts of what went on. So, I talked about codices, and I didn't explain, you know, like, explain this fully yet, but what's amazing is that in most sources, uh, in, 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 in the first through the fourth centuries, so zero to three, 300, um, uh, we have, uh, well, to two, 400, sorry, um, we have um, about 98% of surviving uh, documents that are not Christian are on rolls, right? They're on rolls like the Torah is on. But curiously, 
Of the 172 total Christian manuscripts we have from the same period, 158 of them are codices. They're not written. So codex is like, sorry, a codex is like a book. It's a, you know, it's, you know that's, that's what we're dealing with. So why is it that the material culture of early Christianity is so distinct and different from the material culture, the written culture of the Jews at the time of Christ, that everything is written on these rolls. And, and it doesn't, it's not just about Jewish religious things. Everything's being written on rolls. And yet, for some reason, the vast majority of Christian documents, the vast majority are written in a different form, in a different kind of notebook, if you will. That's weird. But I think what's exciting about this is it points to something fascinating. So I talked about the oral Torah. And the oral Torah was written on those codices, like books. Now, now you have to, when I say 98% of non-Christian stuff that we have, is this, that's a huge, vast array of literature. And I should, I should say we're focused just on the, you know, the, the, the area of, um, the, the, uh, 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 of ancient Israel at that time. You know, we're not, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking about China or something like that uh, when, when we make that claim. So the, two, so the 2% is significant. There's plenty of codices out and about. Um, but what's interesting is that there's such a dominance in the Christian community for this other form of writing. And oral Torah was being recorded on codices so that you knew it was different from the Torah, which was the law of the, like the prophets. Uh, right? So, the, so, so, so the, the Torah would be on these codices. So, and, and similarly, they were using roles as, as a, for all the other things like the prophets. The reason the minor prophets, right? Those, the, those 12 prophets... And I, I think they, they get slighted. They get called the minor prophets and they kind of get grouped together and you think they're minor like they're not important. Well, Malachi, they moved them to be right to, you know, Lee Bridge between the OT and the, and the New Testament because it's, it, it points to Christ in such a clear way. They're, not, they're, they're minor just because they're short. And the reason they're all grouped together is you could fit the 12 of them on one roll. And to this day, we still think about it like, oh, the minor prophets, those 12, well, they could all fit on one roll. So the material culture, even today, is informing how we think about our scriptures and their unity. So getting back to the idea of the, 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 the Bible, the Hebrew Bible being written on rolls, and then the Christian early scriptures are written in codices. Um, uh, some people say, well, that's just because Christians didn't have a lot of money and it's cheaper and what have you. But I don't really buy that because if at the time people are thinking, I mean, this is, this is important stuff. This is the story of Jesus Christ. You're going to get it on the best possible stuff you can if you're, if you're writing it, uh, you know, to tell the story of what happened when, when God came to earth and Jesus. So, so I don't think that's a particularly powerful or compelling um, excuse for why all the Christian documents tend to be in codices. But what I think is interesting is that the oral Torah was in a codex. So the idea was that the commentary on the prophets and the Old Testament, you wrote in commentarii, right? That's the Latin word for, for, for a codex, you know, the early Latin word for it. Um, and, uh, and so you're writing all about uh, what... So, 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 th- so think for a minute about what this means in terms of what we're doing as Christians when we're writing the first scriptures. We're seeing them as a kind of part of the oral 
Torah tradition of Jesus. And Jesus is what? He's a rabbi. He's a teacher, right? So it makes sense. We're following Rabbi Jesus. We're going to put his stuff in the same format in terms of material culture as, as you would this oral Torah tradition. Now, there's one other thing I want to talk about, which is a little out there, um, but I also think is, is, is exciting. Now, let me stop for a second. There have got to be questions, because I don't feel like I'm being terribly clear. So, so, so any questions, please. Go for it. Oh, yeah. Question on the, uh, the oral mm-hmm. Torah. Mm-hmm. Could you equate that? To, you know, you had the, the Torah that set up, the top, for yeah. example, and the people that came in had their oral well, I don't think it was necessarily something that would be in personal possession, but there would be, you'd go and you'd study, um, you know, these, these documents. And there's a whole history of the tradition, uh, you know, of how this, and, and I'm no expert on it. I do know that it tends to be written on codices rather than on scroll, rolls. didn't have an actual tour. No, it's a community property. Yeah, it it's a community property. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, most, you know, yeah, that's absolutely right. Another question. Someone else? Was, yeah. was there some thought that by being in a commentary that it would thereby not sort of take away from the primacy of the Torah? Well, that's an, in, yeah, that's one of the interesting things. And that leads well into the next thing I wanted to say, which is that we actually have Christian um, copies of the Old Testament. And they're not on rolls. They're in codices. Which is weird. So, 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 so hold on to that. Go on, yeah. Jesus said, I do not come to fulfill the law. Mm-hmm. So clearly, he thought he was an insider. I mean, I come to fulfill the law. Yeah, yeah. So he rightfully thought he all this belonged. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think this is this is what's exciting. Jesus says, "I'm coming to fulfill the law," and evidently the Christian community did too, because they went from being a community where there was a scroll that was the law, to a community where there was Jesus Christ, who was the embodiment of the law. Just as he says, "I, you know, I came to fulfill the law. I'm not going to remove one iota from it." So all of our scriptures, from the earliest time in Christianity, are commentaries on the word made flesh. So, the, so think, and, and this just blew my mind thinking about, about Paul and how he talks about the relationship that we have to the law. Suddenly, we still are engaged with the law, but we're engaging with it in a way in which we're seeing it as something that is pointing towards the truth of Jesus Christ. So that, the, that by re, and, and this is also, I think, a, a, it sort of blows out of the water that idea that the codexes are cheap. So, you know, I mean, you have, there are, tor- there are scrolls, you know, around, rolls on it. So why this idea of creating new documents? Um, that, because what it does is it puts us in a tradition where suddenly what we're relating to is a commentary on the word made flesh. That's the word, and everything is in, is in, and is in codices. So there's a beautiful way that that all fits together. Go ahead. The books of the Torah are what? So it's the first five books of the of the Bible are in, are in the Torah, but but the, all of the Hebrew Bible um, would be written on rolls at the, at this time. Is, is that helpful? Stephen, I get the feeling you're trying to lay the groundwork to say this is a new covenant. We're going in a new direction, and to sort of graphically emphasize that we're using a new format mm-hmm. to explain. That. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what's really and and this is not this is not something I I, I mean. 
that I, 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 I'm not, I'm not like sitting, you know, I just read a, a lot about this, and I, I think that this is, this is something that's relatively new in the research, but I think is borne out. There's this whole tradition of canon criticism of thinking with it, with the canon, people like Childs and everything, but it's only recently that peop, someone has gone back and done a lot of the work with the text and the, the historical evidence to kind of back up that kind of thinking. So again, next week we'll talk about those thinkers and, and what it looks like to be shaped by the shape of the scriptures as we read them. Um, go How ahead. Was the Torah stopped five books? What was the well, the, the that's that's so so that's you know that's a good question because I think it was von Rod who wanted to say that it was uh, six that it should be six that Joshua should be con- included, but um, but the the that those the tradition with, among the Jews was that this was the law that um, that Moses received so it was the Mosaic law and then the trouble is at the end that the, Moses dies at the end so evidently he didn't write that part so the tradition is that Joshua wrote that part. You know, to kind of wrap it up, like, yep. Um, so, uh, but the idea is that, that this is the law. And there is a distinction between when you start looking at, 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 at Joshua and these other books, there's a kind of more prophetic, there is a kind of different character. If we think about reading the book of Numbers or Deuteronomy, I mean, Deuteronomy is hugely important, but it, it's, it can be tough going, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's law. Um, uh, so that's, that's a little bit about that. Um, so one of, oh, ooh, so this is the other thing I wanted to talk about. So nomina sacra. Um, I'm going to write this on the board. Is that visible at all? I will do it in a new and bolder color. Oh, is that the issue? Is it is it that we can't see it, or is it that? It, all right, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There we are. So, um, one thing that's fascinating. So we're all familiar with the practice of um, not writing the tetragrammaton, the, the the words for God's name in the scriptures. And if, if, if any of you have like have Orthodox Jewish friends, they'll they might put a dash between the G, the G and the D because they don't because God's name is so sacred that they don't want to say it so they use an abbreviation and what's exciting is that Christians were doing this up until the 15th century Christians had their own nomenclature just like that for certain words and darn it I forgot to make the copies I wanted to make copies of the there ended up being about 50 you know how it gets like it, it, I went through a period where I, I could never I was never quite sure what words I should capitalize when I was writing kind of churchy words, like do you capitalize Eucharist, you know, you capitalize, you know. <laughs> and, and, and you can get in this point where suddenly you're capitalizing everything because it's all so important because it all points to Christ. And it's like, now, you know, so then you have to learn German so you can capitalize it all and just get over it. But um, uh, the, um, the, 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 the key thing is that there is this, 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 so, ah, ooh, we've got one. So there is one that you see in Christian art all the time and it looks I-H-S, right? Yoda, Eta, Sigma, right? That is an abbreviation for Jesus. The, 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 um, the Greek name of Christ is shortened to be that. Now, later on, and this is just how the church works, this is also a lesson about like, don't trust people who tell you like, this is really old and it must be authoritative and it's liturgically, you know, like just think about the scriptures instead. But, but there was a guy named 
um, Bernardino of Siena. And he, he, so people had forgotten what is all this IHS about. So they asked him, what's it all about? And he said, well, it's Jesus hominum salvator, which is Latin for Jesus, the um, savior of mankind, right, of, of men. So there's this way in which a new tradition develops. So, so, so this is why, I mean, if you do funny things in churches, like, you know, a lot of manual acts and stuff, there's all these traditions that, well, this is why we're doing it. And if you don't do them, people get upset. And they say, oh, you know, like this was so important. And the reason, somebody had to come up with a reason why they were doing it that way. And, and often those reasons change. The, I mean, I don't, I don't object to this, this Bernardino fellow because, I mean, what he's saying is something that's true. It's not, it's not bad to tell people, well, it's, it's pointing towards the fact Jesus Christ is the savior of men. I mean, that's not, it's not like suddenly we're saying it means something completely different, like recycle. Um, you know, it means Jesus. Um, but what's exciting is, is that's something that we still see in Christian iconography, and that is an evidence of a, of, of a, of a nomenen, a nomen sacrum. So this is the plural, so nomen sacrum. Um, that you'll see in art. So throughout the Christian scriptures in these codices, when, when they came to the name of Jesus, they had a little shortening and they only used two, um, uh, two letters for it. They did the same thing with theos, with, with for God. Um, uh, they would just use um, a theta and a sigma. So, so they're shortening in the same tradition. And we know that this was happening. And it happened all the way through the 15th century. Why do you think at the 15th century people stopped doing this? Well, there's the, there's the printing press. And, and somehow, some of the early editions, so, so the, fir, the Luther Bible of 1534, so we're talking about the first Luther Bible, in it, so, so just because it's fun to use German, and I never get to here. So, so we have hair. Instead of writing hair with, like, why are you capitalizing this? In, in, in the first Luther Bible, the Luther Bible, in uh, 1534, there's this tradition of sort of pointing to the fact that there were these nomina sacra in the scriptures. Um, and, and similarly, even up to the, to the early, um, so in, in the early 18th century, uh, the Swedish uh, Bible, and I know this and you can tell I definitely got this from the dissertation from Lund University, right? <laughs> um, uh, was, uh, so Charles Twelfth of Sweden, he, he did the same thing. He had, so he would, when, when in, in, that, in that edition, the, the authorized edition that he had, just like we have the King James Version in English, um, this was how you said Jesus. You, you capitalized it. So, so there was this pointing towards the fact that there was this tradition. But gradually, people were like, why do you keep, you know, why do we keep capitalizing E? So somebody was like, oh, that's a typo. You know, and they, and they change it over, over time. And so we lose sight of this. But what's exciting is that we know that there were Christian copies of the Old Testament because there were certain tropes about how that you would write to show respect for God with, with you know, certain, certain, everybody had, so the Christians, the early Christians and the early Jews had different nomina sacra. And so this presented a, a big quandary for the rabbis because if you have a, a, a scroll or something that has the name of God written on it, it's very sacred. So you can't just throw it out in the, in the trash heap. And they have these special boxes whose names I, I put somewhere in all my papers and I've forgotten them. Uh, but um, anyhow, so, so yeah, Geniza. Geniza is the name of them. I, I don't know, what am I? So, so there's a box and you, you put all the old worn out scriptures that have God's name on them in there. 
Well, now we've got a problem because they're coming across Christian scriptures, which are their scriptures, right? They're, they're, the, they're copies of Old Testament scripture. And they've got the Christian shortening in there. And they're like, well, does that count or not? <laughs> you know, like, is that really, you know, so, so, there's this, so, there, so we know that there's records of a rabbinical debate about this. And what this is, here, here's, here's what's exciting. This is, these, these things go back to, to, to very early on. We're talking first and second century. And, and we see in there the, the fact that there, there's this, this witness. Oh boy, I did not do a good job this time. Uh, nomina Sacra, the fact that we have these Nomina Sacra in, um, uh, in, in, at that time, it points to a sense of a kind of unity of canonicity, of even though there's no council that has said, these are the books that are belonging in the Bible, we know that people, Christians, early Christians, were already demarcating a kind of unitive quality of scripture. And what they're also doing with that is they're they're seeing it in a way as a commentary on the word made flesh. So instead of everything being a commentary on, or or sort of a history on the Old Testament, it's there's this desire, so, that, so there's like a simultaneous, you've got, the, you've got these testimonies about Jesus. And there are a lot, and there has to be a process of discernment of, 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 of you know, a, a rule of faith to decide what's in and what's out. And we, we'll talk about that next week. Um, but uh, what, we, what, we, what we see going on is a, um, that, 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 that there's this simultaneous process where we're taking the Old Testament out of roles, we're kind of decanonizing it in a way. Because what we're doing is we're saying it has a different, its purpose is the prophets. And you see that Jesus himself in Luke, right? What did he say? He said that, you know, they say he interpreted for us Moses and all the prophets, right? So there's a sense in which the whole of the Old Testament becomes a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Not three distinct sort of types of literature that, are different and maybe the prophecies talk about Jesus, but that the whole thing is prophecy about Jesus Christ. It's prophecy about the word made flesh rather the word, than the word on the roll. So, the, so we have this kind of decanonization, and I'm hesitant to say that because there's a big Christian heresy which is at the root of why we have a distinct scripture where, where a guy named Marcion in Rome didn't like Jews. He's an early anti-Semite and he says, well, let's get rid of all the Jewish scriptures and by the way, I think there's too much Jewish stuff in a lot of the Gospels, so I'm just going to use Luke and some other things that I think are sufficiently non-Jewish. And that, what a, afterwards, the church has to say, no, 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 nobody. Like, <laughs> that's totally wrong. and has to say, these are the books. So there's, there's, so there's a sense that just like we saw with the evolution of the creeds, there's a sense in which um, that conflict is, um, uh, is, is precipitating a kind of formal statement of what was already true. So when people say, well, you know, the Bible wasn't decided and closed as a canon until, you know, like the fourth or the fifth century. And actually, I, I would say, well, if you want to be a stickler about it, it was, wasn't until the Council of Trent that the Roman Catholics decided what was in the Bible, because that's when they decided that the Apocrypha, which we talked about last week, and, if, and I was belonged in the Bible. Uh, you know, so that's 16th century stuff. Uh, so, so, but, but from the very beginning, from the first and second centuries, we see evidence through these texts and the way that things are written and, um, and this practice of nomina sacra and as well as codices, an emergent theology of the, of the written word and inspired scripture that has a kind of unity because you're using the same abbreviations throughout um, and also 
a kind of authoritative authority, but it's a different kind of authority because it's an authority that points to the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So, um, I have two minutes for questions. Okay, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. Um, I thank you uh, for bringing these people here. Um, and I uh, just thank you for your word. Um, just be with us and guide us as we engage with it um, throughout the week. Um, I ask that you would send your spirit to be with us in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay.